hey, we're actually starting a new sermon series today that's actually just going to be a couple, couple of weeks long, and it's about this theme of love and the great commandment, or the greatest commandment that Jesus talks about. Uh, and then in the fall, we'll be starting a new sermon series on the story of Scripture and how Christianity is, is something that we believe to be true, but also incredibly compelling. So wherever you are in your faith journey, I just want to say welcome. Uh, today, you get to see actually the central teaching of what Jesus says, everything about our faith is about. And so uh, let's actually turn to that passage in Matthew chapter 22. This is Jesus. He's actually interacting, what you'll notice, um, with some religious leaders, and he gives this teaching about what is the greatest commandment. And that's what we're actually going to be exploring today. So here it goes. It says, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. Now, these were two different groups of religious leaders. If you could think of them as religious authorities who knew the scriptures inside and out, they were the ones uh, who were the authority on what God uh, believed and how God was imparting himself to the world around us. So you can imagine Jesus's biggest confrontations. Most people think that, oh, Christians are against those sinners. What's so fascinating is that Jesus's strongest, most harshest critiques and criticisms and arguments were often actually against the religious elite, the people who knew the scriptures well, the people who uh, could quote from memory all sorts of passages from the scriptures. And so as Jesus is interacting with them, one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, as I, as I mentioned that question, some of you are like, what's the big deal? Greatest commandment in the law? Now, you got to understand this because in today's world, if someone came to you and asked this question, what is the greatest commandment in the law that we have uh, in the constitutional United States of America? Most would be like, I don't care. Uh, and it's probably the most ridiculous question. Well, back then, basically law uh, and this idea of religious law, it was all tied in with kind of the social fabric uh, of a culture. It was also kind of politics, social culture, cultural norms, all of these things are mixed in when this question of the law is brought up. Because for the people of Israel, they believed in this idea of a merged nation state. So as a result, when he's asking this question, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Really, the question could probably be translated today. What is the greatest kind of um, thing that we should be living for today in our lives? What is the way and the manner in which we should conduct every single part of our lives? That's really the question that's being asked. So look at how Jesus responds. He says, Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Now, he's essentially saying with everything that you have, your soul, your heart, your mind, every part of of your, your being, your life, you were to orient around loving the Lord your God. Now, here's the thing. That might be so crazy for some of you, right? Maybe you walked into church for the first time. Someone invited you here and said, we're having pizza afterwards, which we are. And we'd love for you to, to try some pizza. And you're like, well, I, I, I didn't want to come to church, but I heard about the pizza. And uh, maybe you're here and you're like, I, I thought this Christian thing was, was about like do's and don'ts laws that you're supposed to follow. And even when this idea of a great commandment is brought up, why in the world is Jesus talking about the commandment is to love? Isn't that extraordinary? That here, Jesus is basically saying that if you were to, if you were to boil down the Christian faith into one thing, it's this word love. And to do it with all that you have and to love God in this manner. Uh, this is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. There's that question, or there's that word, rather, again, of love. Love is central and fundamental to the Christian faith. Now, look at what Jesus says. He says, all the law and the prophets, in other words, in the ancient world, for Jesus' time, the Torah 
the law and the prophets, all the teachings of God, everything that could be summed up is summed up in this. That's why he says, hang on these two commandments. Now, here's the thing about Jesus. Jesus, there's actually something called the synoptic gospels. The synoptic gospels are Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, the gospel of Mark, and the gospel of Luke. Synoptic gospels are basically these gospel accounts, these historical accounts of Jesus that all have very similar stories. So I'm going to read for you in the different synoptic gospels how this greatest commandment is brought about. So check this out, gospel of Mark. Look at what it says. Uh, Now, notice, again, it's teachers of the law that he's interacting with. Notice at the end what it says. There is no commandment greater than these. So here in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is again talking about this greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with everything that you have. Your entire being is to be centered around loving God. There is no greater commandment than these. Now look at the Gospel of Luke. Look at what it says at the end of the Gospel of Luke. Um, It says, you have answered correctly. I'm looking at the bottom here in this underlined phrase. Jesus replied, do this and you will live. Why? Because the question has to do with what is, basically, how can we have eternal life? Or how can we live the good kind of life that everyone is, is searching for and looking for? A life that's good and beautiful and true. And Jesus basically says, this is how. Through loving the Lord your God and through loving others as you love yourself. Now, here's the thing. Some of you might be surprised that even though Jesus presents this as the greatest commandment, both this first commandment to love the Lord your God with everything that's in you, as well as to love others as yourself, this passage actually comes from another passage in the scriptures. It actually comes from the Hebrew Old Testament in the book of Deuteronomy. Check this out. Look at what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 to 8. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. There it is. Do you see that? It's there in the Old Testament. In other words, every part of who you are is to love God with all that you have. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. See, the people of Israel actually oriented around this passage throughout its inception when the law was given to them in the book of Deuteronomy. So for centuries... The Jewish people and the people of the nation of Israel had centered around this passage. Now, this passage is actually, in the Hebrew, it's, it's Shema Israel. Can I hear you say Shema Israel? That's right. Shema Israel literally means hear, O Israel. And, and whenever someone would say the Shema, this is actually a prayer that even in modern times, for religious Jews, they actually say this prayer twice a day. And at very significant occasions, whether it's Sabbath meals or other moments, Shema is the, the word that would come to the, to the Jewish mind regularly about this idea of loving the Lord your God. And here's what it meant to love the Lord your God. Again, to do it with everything that you have, your soul, your body, your mind, everything that you have to Shema Israel. Now, notice in the passage in Deuteronomy, check out what it says, right? Because here, O Israel... Look at the underlined portion. It says, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the the doorframe of your houses and on your gates. I actually wanted to point out a couple of pictures here, some images that might be a little bit difficult for you to see. But notice on the bottom left, um, 
You see a man at the Wailing Wall. This is a modern picture. And notice he's actually wearing something. There's like a box on his forehead. And he's actually got wrapped around his arms these leather straps. And what you don't see is there's actually another box that's also tied to his, to his bicep close to his heart, positioned to his heart. There's some communities, Jewish communities, even in this neighborhood, that even to this day, they wear these, it's called tefillin or phylacteries. They wear these and they tie them around their arms and they attach them or affix them to their forehead as well as to their bicep close to their heart. Why? Because of Shema Israel. Now, isn't that interesting that even today, this idea to what? To tie them as symbols on your hands and write them on your foreheads. This is how, how prominent this command is to the people of Israel. Shema Israel. It's love the Lord your God. God is the center of my life. This needs to be at the center of everything that I do. Some of you may have been wondering, why do Jews wear these leather straps? Why do they put them on their forehead in this manner? It comes from Shema Israel. Now, uh, write them on the door, fr- door frames or the doorposts or the gates. There's actually something called a mezuzah on the right. I know it's a little bit difficult to see, but notice there's a hand on the door frame, and there's a small little kind of um, note or a kind of like... Uh, indentation that uh, comes out. Uh, it's not an indentation. It's basically a, something that's on the door frame. And I, I could imagine that some of you perhaps, you know, I know that most New Yorkers, uh, you know, you've probably lived in about 50 different places in two years, right? Like, I mean, that's kind of the common experience. And you've probably gone around to different apartments and you've noticed this little kind of thing on the door frame. Uh, and it's, it's slanted and it has some Hebrew writing on it. That Hebrew writing is actually Shema Israel. See, because what Jews do, uh, especially in ancient Israel, but also today in modern times, they put these things called a mezuzah, and the mezuzah is actually on the doorframe. The mezuzah, if you notice, especially Orthodox Jewish homes, when they enter, what they'll do is they'll, they'll kiss their hand, and then they'll kiss Shema Israel. They literally are taking this command to put on the doorframes Shema Israel. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with everything in you. Now, these are tangible, literal ways in which the people of Israel or Jews take literally this command to impress them, to have this be part of their daily living, to have this command to love the Lord your God, that this is what life is all about. If you're wondering what your true north is, for the people of Israel or for Jewish followers, it's basically like, if, if you're wondering, like, what is the meaning of life? Is it your career? Is it your 401k? Is it your investment portfolio? Is it your LinkedIn profile? No, no, no. Like, there's this literal reminder on your forehead and wrapped around your arms and close to your heart and on every doorpost that you kiss as you enter. That's a reminder. Hey, can you just reframe your life? Can we all reframe our lives here and have this Shema Israel be at the center again? To love the Lord your God with all your heart. And so here's a question that I would love to pose to us today as it relates to even this practice, right, of tying them on your arms and your forehead is what do you have tied to your head? 
your heart, and your hands. Now, I'm not talking about literally tied, but you know what I mean. What is it that we have in our hands, our hearts, that we tie closely to our hearts, that we wrap around our minds, that end up shaping the way that we approach life and this world? You know, the reality is some, of, some people might say, oh, yeah, this religion that you're constantly just trying to, to press this on to different people and what they believe. And the reality is we live in contended space all the time. We're being shaped all the time by all sorts of influences and forces, whether religious or not. It could be secularism. It could be Disney and the be happy kind of I just made that up, but I don't know, the Be Happy Disney, I don't know if that's Disney, but it's, it's just the modern age, right? The secular world is telling us what is valuable, what is important, what is meaningful. For the Jewish community, it's these phylacteries, the tefillin and the mezuzah, that are these tangible reminders of like, no, 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 I want my life to be recalibrated and be centered around something fundamentally different. And the reality is, so much of what we're, what we're contending with from popular media to social media to whatever else is shaping us, is shaping our minds of what is the greatest commandment, what is most important. And the question that I have for you and for me is what is tied around your hands, your head, and your heart? Or what is posted around your home? And again, it can be proverbially, what is posted around your home? You know, as I was reflecting on this message, I just, I, I started just doing a quick inventory of our own home. I'm like, I looked at my screensaver, and what was it? It was my family. And then I noticed around our home, it was all these pictures of our family. And it, it kind of makes sense to me, right? And, and this is no diss on my family at all. I love my family. But I, one of the things that I realized was, like, as someone who grew up in a very kind of broken home, um, one of the most important things for me now that I've grown up a little bit is that my family would be the most important thing for me, both my wife as well as my children. And so as a result, it's the easily the topic that I pray about the most. It's easily the content of most of my sermon illustrations, as you've noticed probably, right? It's something that I'm constantly wrestling through. And uh, I, I, just in preparation for this sermon, I was talking to my kids who are 11 and 7 about this. And I was like, hey, I was like, hey, what, what, you know, what do you think is the most important thing in our lives? And um, I think they could tell where I was going through. So they're like, God. And I was like, good. I'm glad. Because the last time I mentioned this illustration, you said math, David. And I just, you know, <laughs> if you were here a few weeks ago. But anyway, they're like, God. I was like, yeah. And I was like, what do you think is second? They said, family. And I was like, yeah, family. And I said, you know what I realized? I realized sometimes, and I was telling my kids this, sometimes I value you guys more than I value God. And I care more about what happens to you guys than I care about God. I care more about mom sometimes than I care about God and all this stuff. And they're like, no, you don't. And I was like, oh, okay, good. That's good. That's good. I'm glad. I'm glad you're telling, give me the right answers here. But then I, I basically said, hey, I, I hope when you guys grow up, that you don't value me more than you might value God or value each other more than you value God. And I said, why do you think I'm saying that? And they said, uh, I don't know. You know, and I said, well, 
I mean, one of the most easiest explanations I can give to you is because I'm going to fail you horribly. I'm never going to live up to the best ideal of what a dad should be. I mean, I'm pretty damn good. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> um, but I'm not going to be perfect. Mom's not going to be perfect. There are so many things in this world that gives us this fleeting kind of illusion of being God or like God's. But I, I just want you to know there's a God who is much greater, is much better. And that's why we worship God. I don't know if they'll remember that lesson, but it was helpful for me as I was just thinking about, wow, all these images, and I just realized, gosh, it's so easy to have this fine line where even the good things in life can easily become the thing that I love the most. And so before God, I was like, God, what, what can I, what before you captivates me in all of these different ways so that I can love you? You know what's interesting, though, right? Because even upon talking about this idea of, like, the greatest commandment is to love, some of you are like, honestly, like, that seems fundamentally different or opposed to love, to be commanded to love someone. Like, how in the world is that even a loving kind of gesture? Well, you see, in the story of God, it's always been about relationship. <laughs> um, and it can easily be misconstrued as like, ah, oh, see, I knew it. Like God is basically some sort of killjoy that's trying to command us to do something that we don't want to do. Commanding us to love when we just don't want to love. Well, see, this is where Jesus comes into the picture because God sends Jesus, his son, to, into the world to actually be flesh amongst us and to show us what it's like to actually be in relationship with God. And there's actually this story that I thought we could turn to as we kind of close our time together, this story of what a loving relationship looks like. And, and I thought it could be seen through the lens of Jesus and Simon Peter. It actually comes to us from John chapter 21. Now, to give some context of this story, it's basically Jesus is resurrected from the grave. So you can imagine this. Jesus is resurrected from the grave, has started to appear to more than 500 people. And, and so you could imagine, like, the exhilaration, the joy of the news that Jesus is alive now. What? This is crazy making news. And yet we come to this passage in John chapter 21. Now notice when it comes to this relationship, this theme of love is going to come up pretty regularly. Check this out. Look at what it says. It says, Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples after his resurrection. By the Sea of Galilee, it happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. Now, before Simon Peter was actually a disciple of Jesus, he was actually a professional fisherman. So it just makes sense that he would go fishing. Now, he says, so they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Now, here's what's extraordinary about this miracle. Any listener to the gospel would have known that when Jesus first called Simon Peter, for instance, in Luke chapter 5, he actually does so by doing this miraculous catch of fish. So it's almost like this echo of a story that's happening. Like, wait a minute, we've read this story before. Simon Peter was first called by Jesus to follow him. 
And the same thing happened, a miraculous catch of fish. So you have these echoes going on. Now, it says, then the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John who's writing this. Don't you love that? He writes it that way. Said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, following the net full, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about 100 yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. It's this very human element now where Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, is like he's, he's inviting them to a warm fire to eat some supper. Now look at what it says. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. So do you see what's happening here? Now Jesus is around a fire. He's inviting them to have, have breakfast, not supper. Let's go to the next slide. This moment now is another echo. Look at what happens. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He answered, uh, or Jesus said, take care of my sheep. Uh, the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time. Do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Now, I'd, I'd love to point something out about this passage because it's a little bit confusing. Well, first, here's what's not confusing. This is another echo. Why? Because just a few chapters earlier, Simon Peter is also around a burning fire, and it's during that time when he's around this burning fire that he actually betrays Jesus three times. If you know anything about the story of Simon Peter, he's someone who betrays Jesus three different times, and it's three different times that Jesus is asking him this question, do you love me? And so scholars and theologians have pointed out that this passage certainly, he's reinstating Peter and he's doing so in a manner in which he's trying to say to Peter, Peter, um, listen, the same way that Jesus, the same way that you betrayed him, Jesus is reinstating you. Now, check out this question though that I think gives a, a little bit more of a clue into this text. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Why, why does he say more than these? And who are the more than these? And moreover, why is the response, Simon says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he says, feed my sheep. That's a really weird response from Jesus, right? If, if Simon Peter were to basically say, yes, Lord, you know I love you, then you'd expect Jesus to be like, thank you. I'm glad you love me. You should love me. You betrayed me, right? But he says something so peculiar. He says, feed my sheep. What does that have to do with love? Well, it goes back to this question of what is this question of do you love me more than these? What are the these that Jesus is talking about here? Scholars have debated this because the question is not do you love me? It's do you love me more than these things? If you were to notice in this story, what are the things that Jesus is talking about? It's all the fish. It's the fishing gear. It's the fact that somehow 
Simon Peter has just gone back to his same old way of living. Simon Peter, after the resurrection, he's been called into this adventurous, incredible journey with Jesus. And yet what you see what Simon Peter has done, he's probably still riddled with shame. He's probably like, man, I've betrayed Jesus. There's no way that Jesus still wants to use me as a disciple. In fact, let me just go back to my ordinary life of fishing. See, the reason why when Jesus says, do you love me more than these? And then Simon Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And then he says, feed my sheep. He's basically saying to Simon Peter, why have you gone back to your old way of life? Why do you go back to the same things that used to animate your life, that used to give you meaning and purpose? Come and follow me and feed my sheep the way that I called you to before you messed up and thought that you had ruined your life. Come back and follow me. See, here's the beautiful thing about Jesus in this relationship. See, even before this episode... Jesus called Peter, not because of how great Peter was, how amazing he was. He called him sheerly by his grace because that's what love does. That's what God's love does. He calls us just where we are, finds us where we are with all of our doubts, with all of our struggles, with all the ways in which we feel like we don't measure up. That's what God's love does, meets us right where we are. But God's love, and even when we mess up, and this is the moment, right, when Peter, these three times, Jesus asked him these three times because he's trying to say, listen, I still love you. I'm still in relationship with you. I still have an incredible destiny for you. But check out how this passage goes on. Look at what it says. And you probably wouldn't have expected this. It says, very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted This is what he's saying to Simon Peter. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate to Peter the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. What? What is Jesus saying here? Now, history tells us that Peter would actually be crucified upside down. In a, in a more inglorious way than Jesus would be. Here's what, Jesus is basically, do you love me? Yes, Lord, feed my sheep. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, feed my sheep. And then basically Jesus is basically like, listen, I love you where you are. I, I, I affirm you and I still call you to be Simon Peter, the one that I'm going to build the church upon. But I also love you enough where I'm going to take you where you don't want to go. And here's what this passage is indicating about this loving relationship with God. It indicates this, that first, loving uh, embraces us just as we are. But also, love takes us where we don't want to go. A lot of times when we think about love and God's love for us, we think of like, oh yeah, what it means is God just wants me to be just as I am. And while that's true, there's this other element of love. Love often takes us where we don't want to go. It causes us to do things that we don't necessarily want to do. Any married people know what I'm talking about? Any non-married people know what I'm talking about? (laughs) I mean, isn't it true to be in any kind of relationship? Yes, to be loved, embraced as you are. 
But love also requires us, especially if we love that person, that we're going to modify, we're going to change, we're going to do things. I hate going to Ikea, but I do so out of love. Wow, I got to clap for that, everyone. That was like, oh, my goodness. Now, that's a silly example, but this is what love is, right? Love is this living organism. It's this relational dynamic that goes far beyond kind of just these pithy quotes. It's this multidimensional way in which Jesus is revealing, even in this relationship with Peter, this is what love does, what love, love demands of us. Love, yes, it embraces us just right where we are, but it also will take us where we don't want to go. And when this command is given to love the Lord your God with everything in you, it doesn't mean, hey, come and enjoy this life. That will be a life that's full of doing whatever you want. I mean, so much of the modern conceptions of love and the way that we think about the world today is love is just letting me be me. And yet the invitation of God is, yeah, God will love you just the way you are. But God will also take you where you don't want to go. The incredible thing is Peter says yes, and it leads into his greatest destiny. Now, some of you are like, that's a lot to ask of a God that I'm just not sure I want to trust in. See, the story of God and the story of Scripture, though, what's so unique about the Christian message is that it's always been about God who loves first. Look what it says in 1 John chapter 4. It says, this is how God showed his love for us. God sent his only son into the world, that's Jesus, so we might live through him. This is the kind of love we are talking about, not that we once upon a time loved God, but that he loved us first. And sent his son as a sacrifice to clear away our sins and the damage they've done to our relationship with God. See, the beautiful story of the good news of Jesus is that, yes, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with everything in you. But the story of scripture would always be about a God who loves us first. A God who, even when we want to run away, even when we feel like we may have uh, been saddled with shame and we've betrayed Jesus at various times, is a God who is unrelenting in his love for us, who beckons us, who calls us, who loves us first, who invites us to a life with him, invites us to surrender to this love in a loving relationship. What does it mean to love the Lord your God with everything in you? It means to be in this living relationship. But first, to be ravished by his love. To realize that there's a God who more than the ways that other people and other institutions and other narratives in the world might fail us and leave us disappointed, there's a God of heaven and earth who loved us, who sent Jesus to come and to die on our behalf and who lives forever and invites us to have this relationship on the God who is secure, who is love, who is firm, who will never let us down, who is for us and not against us, whose love for us was demonstrated on the cross when he died and resurrected from the grave. It's this kind of love.